I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 18th, 2023. Coming up, we look at a climate change panel from CU Boulder's Conference on World Affairs about our energy future, where the panelists gave ideas about hydrogen, geothermal, and nuclear power. Nuclear is a great example of a firm energy source that can help provide sort of this base load generation that we need. And the audience reaction was both pro and con. You said the word nuclear. Boulder's not a friendly place for the word nuclear. Last week, CU Boulder hosted the 75th Annual Conference on World Affairs, with all talks focused on climate change and the climate crisis. You can watch or listen to the talks online. In person, there were big crowds for many memorable keynote speeches, and smaller crowds, such as the people who came to a Friday morning talk about energy technology that will power the world. One of the first people who arrived for that talk... I will give you my first name. ...gave his name as Kevin. Uh, Kevin, and I came because I want to hear about ideas about powering the future, because it seems like we are hopelessly bound to oil and coal, and maybe there's something better, because even solar panels take energy to build, and, I mean, everything costs, and we're not with science fiction fuel cells yet, so we need some new technology that'll get us greener. You sound a little bit like an engineer, are you? No, just a cynic. Oil companies say, look, we've got the cleanest oil in the world. Uh, That's lipstick on a pig if you've ever seen it. It still stinks, doesn't it? What kind of power are they going to talk about as alternatives here on this panel? Well, I'm sure solar and wind and nuclear. Do you have opinions about each of those? Well, I'm in favor of the first two And the last one, I am in favor of it if they do small scale. You you caught me off guard. I got to collect my thoughts a little bit. As Kevin collects his thoughts, let's just say that being a fan of nuclear power in Boulder is unusual. Boulder is one of about two dozen cities in the U.S. that call themselves a nuclear-free zone. When Pennsylvania's Three Mile Island nuclear plant had a partial meltdown in 1979, some people recall living across the river from it, terrified that if it blew, they and millions of others might die. In 1989, Boulder activists were instrumental in shutting down the high-polluting, secretive Rocky Flats nuclear weapons plant that operated just a few miles south of the city. And then there's the Japanese Fukushima nuclear power plant and Chernobyl, and in Ukraine, a nuclear energy plant imperiled by war, plus all the nuclear waste that's still building up. Meanwhile, here was Kevin coming early to this panel. You you caught me off guard. I got to collect my thoughts a little bit. There is technology for nuclear reactors that is much more efficient in terms of the nuclear waste and safer because they're built. So if they get too hot, they actually stop working. So if things get out of hand, like we've seen a lot recently, we don't have a nuclear meltdown. We have a reactor shutting down. So there is a safer method of nuclear power. And I would be in favor of that. Is this a typical opinion in Boulder, what you just gave me? I have no idea. Do you feel comfortable talking with friends in Boulder about this kind of stuff? Um, 
Sure. Um, I don't actually live in Boulder anymore. I mean, I haven't lived here for two to 30 years. Where are you from? Uh, well, I'm from Boulder, but I live in Denver now. Well, let's see what this panel is going to be like then. Um, yes, so nuclear, solar, and wind are part of the discussion in this panel that we're going to hear. You know this? The speaker bios, it seems like they have that kind of expertise. Oh, okay. But I don't know either. Uh, but it is curious to me and interesting that there is a nuclear power advocate who's part of this panel today. Well, it, but I mean, this is... This has always been a venue for sort of differing opinions. We can listen to opinions, and like I said, if they if they have the the safer technology, I'm right there for it. It's the the bomb technology. I think we got to get away from. Near the front at the stage, an older man talked with one of the younger panelists. He is George Kraft. My name is George Kraft. I'm a longtime resident of Boulder. I'm quite interested in power solutions. She is Emma Redfoot, a nuclear scientist, here at the conference representing a group called Mothers for Nuclear. So I want to talk with Emma. I think that there are more solutions than what people are proposing there. And nuclear power may be one of them, you think? I think so, very much so. Emma, this is not a popular topic in Boulder. (laughs) I, I think it's growing in popularity around the country as people realize that the real thing that we're all dealing with is climate change and air pollution. We need to use every tool we can to address those things that are really impacting public health at this point. What are you hearing from people in Boulder as you give talks advocating nuclear power? You know, so far I just had one panel that I was on yesterday, and it was clearly a mix of people who are interested in the topic and generally want to engage in in a meaningful conversation. And there were some in the audience going like this. You're doing thumbs down because you actually saw this? Because she said the word nuclear. Boulder's not a friendly place for the word nuclear. So there were people in the audience yesterday that were just going, no, no, no. There was only one, really. So most of the people were, were open to it. Standing near the wall was a student ambassador. My name is Mariana DeFalco. What would you say about the audience? Is it young, old, in between, men, women? Older people, but we do get a, a few students that ask a lot of questions, and they get priority with the questions because this is done for the students of CU, mainly. Any other things I should know about this panel before it starts? Um, it's unsustainable energy, and hopefully it'll be very interesting. (laughs) What's important to you about what they're going to say? I think they're going to speak about sustainable energy that you don't hear commonly to expose us to, you know, more than just solar and wind. Thank you. I think they're getting ready to start. Yes. There are one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five panelists, two women on the panel, Good morning, everyone. The moderator for the panel was a former mayor of Boulder. And my name is Sam Weaver. I'm the moderator for this panel. And the panel today that you're going to hear is energy technology that will power the world. The panel included someone from the National Renewable Energy Lab down in Golden. NREAL is one of the world's leading centers for innovation in green technologies. This panelist is Chief Research Officer Peter Green. What was interesting is that years earlier, before the Model T... Green says back in the time of the first Ford Model T car, people sort of talked about rising CO2 levels. Before the Model T, um, there's a prediction that the emissions of CO2 would eventually warm the planet. 
And the reaction was, no, 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 let's not worry about it. But what they didn't predict was that six billion people would show up on the planet, and each of them uses three times as much power as they did, and it's all fossil. Green says those rising levels are now a crisis. Also on the panel is the author of a new book, The Energy Switch. The three major drivers are decarbonization. Peter Kelly Detweiler says that solving the climate crisis will depend on lowering the CO2 in the atmosphere, which is called decarbonization. The three major drivers are decarbonization, that thing we have to do, decentralization, which is the move to more and more of these technologies out to all of you, and then digitalization. Like many of the panelists, Kelly Detweiler says that it would be great if we had batteries that store wind and solar energy for when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. The best we do right now is lithium batteries, and they have limitations. The challenge with lithium is it's not cost-effective beyond, say, six hours of storage duration with today's costs. CU engineering professor Kiri Baker was also on this panel. Baker is an expert on the energy grid. She agrees that we need better battery technologies, and we don't have them yet. We now have what's called a duck curve problem. For instance, some areas get so much wind or rooftop solar during the middle of the day, it's more than anyone can use, so it's basically wasted. We're in the middle of the day, you have a huge dip in the amount of energy you need to supply from other sources. And recently in California, we had such a dip that so much solar was generated, it was basically net zero at those time instances. Baker told the Conference on World Affairs audience that there might be creative ways to create batteries, using a house to help hold a little bit of the excess solar energy generated in the middle of the day. If the grid is going to be really heavily loaded in the evening when everybody comes home and turns on their air conditioning and turns on their TV and starts cooking with their induction stoves, Maybe we actually pre-cool your house during the times where there's a ton of solar production. We overlap the supply with the demand better, and then we don't have to use as much electricity during the peak periods. The panel experts said that we might use excess grid power in the middle of the day to run industrial processes that right now pollute a lot, such as making concrete and steel. Baker said that we might use excess grid power to split water to make a more storable kind of fuel called hydrogen. Hawaii residential buildings now have these zero export rules. You literally cannot push rooftop solar back. They have enough. They say, please don't give us any more during the middle of the day. We don't want it. Why not use that extra power to do things like run an electrolyzer, split water into hydrogen and oxygen, and then store that hydrogen for long duration storage? One worry about hydrogen came from Peter Kelly Detweiler, the author of The Energy Switch, because hydrogen easily leaks out of pipes, and then hydrogen adds to the climate crisis. Hydrogen, it's a simple atom, right, or H2 molecule. It can leak, it can get out of everywhere because it's so simple. When it combines in the atmosphere with methane, methane is 80 times more effective at trapping solar radiation than CO2 is. Studies are now showing that when hydrogen is released into the atmosphere, it has the pernicious effect of slowing down the natural degradation of CH4 in the atmosphere, thereby accelerating the potential greenhouse gas effect. So we have to be really careful about what we're doing with our future hydrogen infrastructure. And you can't put it in a current gas pipeline because it leaks like everything. The conversations during the panel bounced around a lot. And as part of that, Kelly Detweller talked about how hackers 
might attack a high-tech grid. There are 13 different persistent threat actors, North Korea, Russia, China, that are trying to hack into our grids all the time. So, again, law of unintended consequences. We have to do this, but we have to be really thoughtful about where we're going and why. Somewhere in all this conversation, the panelists circled to one of the most unpopular topics in Boulder today, and that is using more nuclear power. Here's the panel moderator, former Boulder mayor, Sam Weaver. We need to talk about nuclear, and I'll just put in a personal note. My father was a nuclear metallurgical engineer with a PhD who worked at Oak Ridge National Lab, so I grew up talking about nuclear energy and energy issues at the dinner table. And so it, it is something that a lot of people misunderstand and is a conversation that is well worthwhile. Weaver started the nuclear conversation by talking about a kind of nuclear power that is not used in nuclear power plants today. Nuclear plants today make energy by splitting atoms apart. That's called fission. Another way to make energy involves sort of squishing two atoms together. The technical term is fusion. Here's Conference on World Affairs moderator Sam Weaver. So we've seen some big announcements about fusion out of national labs. So I'll turn to our nuclear expert and ask the question, when will fusion ultimately be available? Um. <laughs> My first interest in nuclear was fusion. So when I was doing this transition from environmental studies to nuclear, and I was like, oh, fusion, it has all these cool things. And I did some research on it, and I decided not to go that route. So I'll just leave that there, I guess. Fission's pretty great. Peter? Oh, I, I just comment, when I was an undergraduate in the 1970s, it's a fusion in 20 years. <laughs> People are very optimistic. These guys are saying maybe another 20, 30 years. <laughs> it's not going to be immediate. But it is important to continue the research because when successful, it's a game changer. It's safe and you can put it anywhere you like, <laughs> okay? And so this is, this is gonna be, I think, uh, a game changer in the future, but it's gonna be a couple of de decades away. While fusion is still decades away, nuclear power expert Emma Redfoot says that today's fission nuclear power plants already provide a huge amount of the carbon-free energy in the United States. Redfoot added that the newest models for nuclear power plant designs offer a new benefit. They can recycle a lot of the spent nuclear waste that's been generated by the older power plants. One thing that I'm really excited about is nuclear waste recycling. At least one company is pursuing taking our nuclear waste and turning it into clean energy. We have 150 years of clean electricity for the country and our nuclear waste alone. That's something that advanced nuclear fission plants can do, fast reactors especially. So that's another note that I think is pretty exciting. Well, yeah, I mean, just for context, this small modular nuclear reactors can fit in the back of a truck. That's National Renewable Energy Lab's chief research officer, Peter Green. And they're trying to make them cost effective, so when you eat electricity, electricity is affordable. <laughs> we sometimes call it a huggable reactor. It's crazy how much energy density is in nuclear. Today's nuclear plants are three million times as energy dense as coal, which means you have to do three million times less mining. Advanced nuclear is up to 20 million times as energy dense. It's wild, and these things you can, you know, you can put into remote communities for 10 years without refueling. It's just a, a different, it's a paradigm shift in how you think about energy. Kind of mind-boggling technology, I think. Kylie, any thoughts on how nuclear impacts the grid? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I want to emphasize that diversity of resources is really what we aim for. Like, I do research in renewable energy, and it stresses me out to think about a grid that's 100% wind and solar. Mm -hmm. 
absolutely stresses me out. Nuclear is a great example of a firm energy source that can help provide sort of this base load generation that we need during times when we don't have the transmission to pipe in the wind or the solar, or we just don't have the generation to begin with. I even believe that we should still have a little bit of natural gas peakers. I think a diversity is really, really important and we shouldn't lose the forest for the trees when we think about we need 100% decarbonization. Getting to that last 10, 20% is just extremely challenging. So we need to think about decarbonizing other sectors, industrial, transportation, these other massive high emission sectors. The grid is one thing, I care a lot about the grid, but it's not the end all be all. We de decarbonize the grid and we've decarbonized everything and solved climate change. While CU engineering professor Kiri Baker says nuclear is a big part of that, and so do the other panel members, they also share great excitement about possibilities for technologies that tap into the naturally occurring heat that comes from areas near natural hot springs and actually the natural heat that's everywhere on Earth. Do you have mentioned geothermal? The National Renewable Energy Lab's Peter Green predicts geothermal could provide 6% of our energy. That's not a lot. But unlike solar and wind, which sometimes are just not available, geothermal could provide constant energy. If that works, then geothermal will actually provide maybe about 6% of power. Between geothermal and nuclear, providing um, base power, it could be a game changer in the years to come. The author of The Power Switch, Peter Kelly Detweiler, also is interested in geothermal. Yeah, geothermal potentially could be limitless. There's a company with a project right now, they got $80 million. They're drilling outside of Munich, using fracking technology, going down, separate pipes, running into each other, and then creating multiples and building a radiator underground. Then they take the heat from the earth, run it through a circulating fluid, generate steam, and they have dispatchable power. There's another one that's drilling in Nevada right now. There are dozens of companies in Texas using oil and gas expertise to build geothermal. It doesn't have to be on tectonic plates or where we've traditionally sited it. We're now getting good enough of drilling deep enough into the Earth's crust and harvesting the heat down there that we may be able to cost-effectively create generation that actually is dispatchable and can follow our demand. It's really early, but it has a huge amount of potential. Also bringing good news about geothermal was Sam Weaver, the moderator of this Conference on World Affairs panel. Well, I'm very glad to hear geothermal brought up because the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, is the head of the Western Governors Association, and one of their big pushes in the next few years is called Heat Beneath Our Feet, Heat Beneath Our Feet, which is about geothermal energy. And one of the places we might actually see it in Colorado is in the valley where the collegiate peaks are. There's a group that would like to put in a 10 megawatt geothermal plant a couple of miles from Mount Princeton Hot Springs, which would be enough to power Buena Vista, which is just up the road from it. So the geothermal in Colorado may be happening because our governor is supporting it quite a bit. All of the panelists agreed that we need a diversity of cleaner energy sources. This was a fantastic conversation. I appreciate what each of you brought to it and your insights. And to the audience, thank you for being interested in such an important topic and something that's going to be relevant to everyone going forward. With that, I'm going to say thank you, and everyone have a good rest of your conference on world affairs. Shelley Schlender, this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. After 
this Conference on World Affairs panel about energy technology that will power the world. Audience members had great enthusiasm. I'm Allie Caustic. I am getting my master's at Western Colorado University in sustainability. The buildings I know on a lot of campuses have transitioned to making their buildings fully geothermal. So I'm Jesse Plotkin. Um, I actually work at HBO, HBO Max. So this is partly how to get enough power to film a great drama. Yeah, exactly. I was a little surprised to hear the uh, release of hydrogen and how it will interact with carbon and methane in the air. How about geothermal? We actually just had a production in Iceland use exclusively geothermal power, and it was so clean, it was amazing, but out in the breaths of Iceland with, without any geothermal, so you're back on diesel, so it limits you to where it's located. One of the youngest members of the audience was a huge fan of nuclear energy. Hi, my name is Dean. I am a nuclear engineering student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I live in Boulder. I'm just here for right now and coming to visit the panel. I was sort of expecting it to be more about wind and solar, but obviously those are great technologies and they should absolutely be pursued. But it was really exciting to see so much talk about nuclear. I think it can be a really scary topic for a lot of people, and I think that the more you learn about it, the more you find out that it's really not that scary at all, and it's a great way to decarbonize our grid and do some deep decarbonization that sometimes wind and solar aren't so good at. One audience member voiced concern that the entire panel had good things to say about nuclear. My name's Rich, Rich Andrews. I am affiliated with Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice. And what I thought of the panel, there's a whole lot of pro-nuke on almost everybody on the panel and they're not talking about the really huge consequences and risks of nuclear. What risks are you thinking of? I'm a chemical and environmental engineer, once worked in the nuclear industry until I quit, and I've done computer modeling using the same models as the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and Oak Ridge Labs to assess risks and consequences. Those entities know better, but they don't tell the public that they know better, that the risks are enormous. I modeled, for example, a particular nuclear plant that the 9-11 terrorists considered attacking. And if they had, the consequences would have been so much bigger than just knocking down the World Trade Center or the Pentagon. They would have wiped out habitability all the way from New York beyond Philadelphia if the wind was going that way or most of New England and all of Boston, we're talking millions of people would have not been able to live in those areas. So you wish that they would have addressed the issue of terrorist attacks? Absolutely. We have to. That's the world that we live in. Don't build energy technologies that are key targets. Are there other objections you have to the ideas that they raised about the new generations of nuclear power plants? They are essentially identical in many respects to the existing fleet of plants that we have. They use the word small modular. Small is only because of one individual component of the reactor. Small is an advertising gimmick, is the way it boils down to. And they even create more waste per megawatt of electricity output. What about what the panelists were saying about recycling? spent nuclear waste. They really didn't hardly address that. What are the wastes? Well, the wastes are mostly really very dangerous elements that 
have a lifetime of hundreds of thousands of years longer than the human race has existed. Based on Rich Andrews' concerns, we caught up with the panel's nuclear energy expert, Emma Redfoot. Nuclear plants have historically been one of our safest forms of power along with wind and solar. If you look at the number of people who've died per the unit of energy generated, wind, solar, and nuclear are about the same. This individual's issue was what if a person bombed a nuclear power plant and the bomb worked? The NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is the regulator for nuclear, reviews designs for that specifically. These are designed to be robust against all kinds of external hazards, which security concerns are included. So it's something that's inherently a part of every single reactor design and every single review of a reactor design. But if a nuclear power plant was breached, would it be pretty nasty and awful? It depends on the nuclear power plant. A lot of the new designs that are coming out are extremely small, which just means you don't have very much inventory no matter what, let alone talking about what the design is. And the designs are so inherently and passively safe they are, aren't pressurized. There's all kind of things that make it so that it's like nothing would really happen if you are dealing with a very small facility, which a lot, that's what we're moving t towards with most designs. Were you surprised in that panel that every single person on that panel said that nuclear is an important part of the mix for energy of the future? Those were all energy experts. And energy experts don't tend to completely rule out nuclear. They might have more of a role for it or less of a role for it, but when people see the scale of the problem we're facing in terms of our energy needs, they see that nuclear is an important part of that. As takeaways from the morning's talk, we need to act fast to get more carbon out of the atmosphere and stop putting carbon in. Second, there are a lot of moving parts to decarbonizing our energy supply. As for nuclear, Boulder is still on the books as a nuclear-free zone. Might it be time to have more conversations about new options for carbon-free energy, including the newest designs for nuclear energy plants. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is yours truly, Shelley Schlender and I produced this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Bonobo. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and hot links to the topics we discussed today. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.